The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. It seems that the only thing that could get him uh, his desire is to destroy Ukraine. And what, what this is likely going to look like is a major, major military offensive. I've described it as the largest offensive in Europe since World War II. And it's going to look like shock and awe, like desert, uh, elements of Desert Storm, just for, for a frame of reference. Enormous use of air power, cruise missiles long-range fires, uh, long-range artillery. One of the fundamental objectives is a military objective. It's actually to destroy the Ukrainian armed forces. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 23rd, 2022. Vladimir Putin has recognized two separatist regions in Ukraine, He has sent Russian troops as so-called peacekeepers to defend them, and all of this seems to be presaging a wider war in Ukraine. The United States and lots of other countries have announced sanctions. It's all heating up very fast. So we got together in the Virtual Jungle studio, Alex Vindman, Pritzker Military Fellow at the Lawfare Institute, and Scott R. Anderson, Lawfare Senior Editor, to talk it all through. What is Vladimir Putin doing? What can we expect militarily? Why did he go through this Byzantine process of recognizing these two non-states? Are we expecting a wider conflict or a narrow one? What do the prospects look like for either And will the international community hang together? It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 23rd, Russia Attacks Ukraine. So, Alex, get us started, since you're the uh, defense minister of Ukraine. Is there, at this point, any uh, significant hope to avoid war uh, or a larger conflict and have this remain, you know, Russian incursions into places that they've already have had troops? uh, Or is this now destined to be a larger conflagration? No, no, and yes. But let me expand on that. Uh, First of all, we know that we're not at the highest point of this military offensive because the Russians would have attacked if I was the Minister of Defense by now. But uh, I answer your question about uh, diplomacy. I think, frankly, I would say that 
Vladimir Putin's pretty much closed off all of the reasonable off-ramps to diplomacy. So the most likely scenario for a diplomatic off-ramp up, up until yesterday morning was that somehow, in spite of holding amazingly firm, like Man of Steel, firm to Ukraine's sovereignty and independence, unbending to Russian pressure, there was still the chance that somehow Zelensky was going to compromise and try to uh, fulfill the Minsk agreements according to Russia's wishes, because there's, that's been a longstanding issue about you know what what Minsk accords required, what obligations were on the Russian and Ukrainian side. But the Russians, of course, wanted them to to do it in their manner, which is which would give Russia a veto over the geopolitical orientation of Ukraine. So that that is shut down now. Minsk doesn't exist anymore. Putin said as much, you know, just within the last several minutes. He said um, he also assigned several decrees recognizing uh, the, according to him, uh, independent states of Luhansk and uh, Donetsk Democratic Republics. Part of the issue that he clarified today, which was, you know, initially seemed like it was going to be uh, provide a little bit of a, I don't know, a temperature regulation was that it was going to be maybe within the confines of the existing boundaries of those territories. And that means that the current boundaries can ex- can expand. You know, they're one third of the total territory of Lugansk and Donetsk Oblast. So that's gone. Joe Biden and the West were unflinching in pushing back on Russia's demands for a veto over your European security orientation. That was not going to happen. You know, that was something that was basically discounted for for months now and at the cost of potentially a war in Ukraine to stand on principles. So that that's not going to happen. And then Putin, who always has the most flexibility because he's an autocrat, could pivot in a different direction. But he's also kind of locked himself in. He now has these shows, these demonstrations for his population with regards to the Security Council, with regards to his, his you know, can't be described anything other than a rant uh, on TV to uh, the Russian population. And then, you know, by these actions, even by the rubber stamps from the Duma, for Russia conducting uh, military operations outside of his borders. So I'd say, I'd say the diplomatic component to this, at least for the foreseeable future, is not relevant. I think it could reemerge again, you know, once Russia believes it's achieved some of its aims, or once pressure has been ratcheted up on Russia to such a degree that it, it's, you know, it, it starts to kind of reverse course on some of its objectives. With regards to the offensive, uh, I kind of gave a little bit of the context, but it's worth expanding on why we're still almost certain to have a major military offensive. And the reason is that Putin just gave up his his leverage. If his idea was that he could somehow coerce Ukraine into granting Putin a, a veto, a say in Ukraine's orientation through Minsk, he's cast that aside. So he's, he's eliminated his leverage and he still has 200,000 troops on his border and he staked his credibility on the line. And uh, it would be a bad idea for him to reverse course at, the, at this point from a, a personal credibility standpoint. He'd be vulnerable, even though he's by far the most powerful actor in Russia to, to reverse course like this. And he couldn't be now, from here on out, people would doubt his veracity with regards to his saber rattling. Well, that sounds pretty bleak. So when you say a major offensive, do you mean 
conquer and wipe out Ukraine? Or do you mean something that merely is beyond the borders, even the expanded uh, notional borders of the Donbass oblasts? Are you expecting Ukraine to be sort of removed as a sovereign entity from the face of the earth in the next few weeks? Uh, it's probably closer to that, unfortunately, than, um, you know, more limited gains. Because Putin has certainly detected a low regard for his threats from the Ukrainians. The eight-year war and the acquisition of some 7% of Ukraine's territory was not sufficient to realizing a Ukrainian, you know, a pro-Russian Ukrainian state or, or a failed state for that matter. It's going, so he's a limited uh, objective as in like expanding just these two territories is just simply not going to get him what he wants, which is control over Ukraine. Part of his, you know, his, his rant yesterday was this idea that Ukraine is not even a legitimate state. It's a cut from whole cloth out of, you know, some Russian or Soviet idea of creating a state, which is, these are all completely false narratives, but that's, that's what he said repeatedly. He said this for years, not just yesterday. Uh, he's, he had a long, like 5,000, 6,000 word essay in the summer. And he's been saying this for years that Ukraine is not a real state. So it seems that the only thing that could get him uh, his desire is to destroy Ukraine. And what, what this is likely going to look like is a major, major military offensive. I've described it as the largest offensive in Europe since World War II. And it's going to look like shock and awe, like desert, uh, elements of Desert Storm, just for, for a frame of reference. Enormous use of air power, cruise missiles, long-range fires, uh, long-range artillery. One of the fundamental objectives is a military objective. It's actually to destroy the Ukrainian armed forces so that Ukraine doesn't have the means to resist. But that's not going to be the end of it. He's also going to look to destroy the will of the population to resist. And there, I think he's going to go after what I've called morale targets. Things that are meaningful to the Ukrainian population have been significant to Ukrainian conceptions of um, national identity. So the Maidan Square, where the Orange Revolution and the 2014 Revolution of Dignity, other cultural sites. I think there's a good chance he's going to actually target civilian populations in this effort. I can explain why this is the case and why he doesn't see significant costs there. Uh, that could be a follow-up, but uh, I think those are part of the formula. And then he's going to go after the political targets. And there are all sorts of different tools he has there. It could be like long-range fires to, to, to kill the political leadership of Ukraine. It could be assassinations. It could be, um, you know, kill capture type of operations with regards to special forces. All these types of things are are in play to, to, to achieve that political goal. But I don't, don't know if I would go so far as to say he's going to hold large swaths of Ukrainian territory because he could achieve a lot of his political objectives and military objectives without having to hold a, a large swaths of territory. But there are probably going to be some significant acquisitions. I think some of those acquisitions include uh, expansion of uh, the uh, so-called Lugansk and Donetsk republics, people's republics. It's going to include a land bridge from Russia to Crimea. And it very well seems like it's shaping up to include an amphibious operation 
to gain control of the southern coast of Ukraine, including the largest port uh, of Odessa, and basically cutting Ukraine off from the seas and the oceans. So I think there's something to be said about those cities uh, and those territories being held, but not, uh, you know, maybe severely damaging places, including like Ukraine and uh, and having somebody else pick up the pieces, including the, the caretaker kind of government that the Russians put in place to, to carry out their dictates. Uh, they don't really care about that. So I think it's going to be a pretty disastrous situation. All right. So, Scott, let's talk about uh, Alex mentions the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, People's Republics. It's been a while in our uh, adult lifetimes that we've had to use phrases like people's republics, other than ironically. But uh, Putin chose a very specific modality for orchestrating this invasion, which was rather than simply send tanks into Ukraine to stoke this fight between these separatist regions that he had created uh, six years ago, and then have the local heads of the Russian, uh, pro-Russian communities in these people's republics seek Russian recognition and then move to grant it yesterday and send troops to protect them, allegedly. This is a complicated little dance that he's done that nobody is buying. Why go through this particular act? That's a really good question. Um, and it's something we need to think through what role this might play in whatever kind of strategic vision he has. But it can play a role in a lot of different fronts, whether it's for domestic audiences, certain international audiences versus others. Essentially what he's done, just to, to clarify for folks so so that uh, who may not be as familiar with it, is that he's used a type of international act called recognition, um, which basically says, okay, these entities, Donetsk and Luhansk, constitute, meet the requirements for being treated as states under international law in his eyes. And therefore, Russia is going to say, okay, they have all the duties and obligations that are accorded to them by international law to states as they are now seen as states. Recognition is one of these powers where it is something where the the boundaries of where it applies is a little bit fuzzy. The basic criterion are very broad. It's a permanent population, fixed territory, ability to govern a government, essentially, and an ability to gauge international relations and kind of a willingness, which kind of boils down to, you know, do you think of yourself as a state uh, in, in part, as well as the capacity to actually engage in foreign relations? So those are th- criterion that you can, the eye of the beholder, apply to lots of different places, potentially. All these principles are supposed to be counterbalanced by the general idea that international law it weighs very strongly against the degradation of the territorial integrity of existing states and other states, um, which is part of the reason you do not see many other states signing on to this, that Putin is doing this. But it allows Putin to craft a narrative where under international law, he says, I'm recognizing these people's right, exercising their right to self-determination in Desk and Luhansk. And they now are states, and that gives them the right to defend themselves against armed attacks from outsiders, including Ukraine. And they are suffering those armed attacks, and they have asked me to come help, which is within their rights under international laws called collective self-defense. So I can come in, help them defend their borders, and then that essentially frames both justifies the movement of of Russian troops into those territories, and then potentially justifies a military response to Ukraine as the response to an act of aggression, response to an external threat. 
It's worth noting, as Alex noted already, in declaring or recognizing these territories, he did not just limit either to the territory actually held by the current separatist groups. He recognized it to the whole administrative units of which they are a part, meaning substantial swaths of Ukrainian-controlled territory right now. So why would Putin do this? I I think one possibility is that Putin is crafting it as an effort to kind of portray to the international community uh, at least the sense that to, to put a, a kind of cheap metaphor, instead of taking the whole pie, he's just taking two slices of the pie. When you are drawing the line here, he, he's very clearly signaling he's that he's planning to essentially take these two territories out of Ukraine and put them in nominal independence, largely reliance upon Russia and control under Russia, I would assume. But that's not the same as marching all the way to Kiev. And this might be playing a part of a signaling mechanism saying either genuinely or disingenuously, I don't intend, or at least right now, I'm not, these military actions I'm pursuing are not headed towards Kiev. This is aimed at securing these more limited holdings. And that could both mean that it is something that might be easier for third party states observing this to accept or at least not openly object to groups like China, groups like, I think India had like somewhat not the strongest language around this in the UN Security Council meeting last night, as I recall. Although, apologies if I'm wrong about that uh, from my recollection. You know, it gives them a little bit more of a hook because instead of just openly repudiating and rejecting core principles of international law, Putin is kind of crafting around them and message and forming an argument, however weak it may be. The other thing it does is it signals to Western parties uh, and essentially says, look, this might be a more limited conflict, again, maybe genuinely or disingenuinely. That gives them an incentive to say, well, both this might be better than the worst outcome that we could have feared, and there may be further actions we also have to deter, meaning we have to keep quivers in our arrow, sanction-wise and otherwise. And that appears to be what we see the Biden administration doing so far. We've seen an announcement of sanctions rolled out. They are broad and robust, but not the full range that was reportedly being contemplated by the administration, at least not yet. Export controls aren't included. Um, there are swaths of private sector institutions that aren't fully included yet. And some of the logic of that might be this keep some quivers in the arrow for further deterrence effect. We don't know whether Putin is serious about this or not. We don't know whether this is him saying, well, I'm going to put forward this narrative so that I can move into these territories, hold them, and then I can decide whether to move on to Kiev. Then I can decide to go elsewhere. Maybe he'll march straight there in the first instance. Although I would say if that were his intention, he would have other still very weak and clearly protectual, but still other arguments he could make, right? He didn't actually, when he when he marched into Crimea, make up an argument like this, grant them independence, and then say he's moving in there. He said, oh, this is part of Russian territory, essentially, and claimed it. So, you know, I'm not sure that that, I think there might be a sign that there's doing something different here in regard to these two territories. But again, whether it's an intermediate step or an end goal may not be something that even Putin has fully decided on yet. Uh, But regardless, there's clearly a signaling function that these types of determinations are playing that's different from the approach they took in Crimea. All right. So you mentioned uh, the rollout of sanctions. Let's talk about uh, what was done and what wasn't done. Uh, Scott, give us a rundown of what's in the initial package and what's not there. And then Alex, give us a sense of whether you think this is the right balance, the right package for now, or should it have gone further or not as far? 
Well, sure. Let me start on that. And I want to caveat by saying that with the time of recording, President Biden literally just gave a speech announcing kind of the next wave of these uh, that I watched, but have not seen actually the official action yet and uh, watched very quickly. So I may have missed some details. My understanding of what we've rolled out so far is that last night there is an ex- executive order issued basically imposing a variety of IEPA-based sanctions and asset freezes for various entities doing business in Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, that might have ties to them, installing also basically trying to isolate them internationally, at least any place they intersect with other people who do business with the U.S. financial system. Today, we saw a bigger rollout about major sanctions against uh, major state-owned banks and large financial institutions, a number of prominent individuals, including a number of European and U.K. sanctions against a number of oligarchs and financial institutions. But things we haven't quite seen yet that I am aware of, but they may still be coming, is there's talk about export controls uh, forthcoming coming about the United States kind of restrictions. I, we haven't seen anything on that quite yet or from allied governments. And we haven't yet seen, as far as I'm aware, but this is something I actually will check on and I may correct myself in a minute, anything about uh, SWIFT system. There was talk about removing Russia from uh, the SWIFT kind of international financial transactional system, which would severely inhibit its ability to engage in international financial transactions. So I don't believe that those have happened yet, but I could be wrong. There's also talk about another wave of sanctions targeting various individuals and entities, I'm guessing specific businesses, organizations, agencies, and individuals tomorrow. Um, so we may see more action on those fronts. It's worth noting the United States isn't the only one who's taken action like this. We've seen the European Union, the UK take a variety of similar economic sanctions. A lot of those were against entities that were actually already subject to US sanctions, but not all of them. Um, they're kind of ramping up to closer to the US level. Uh, we see Germany put a pause on Nord Stream 2, um, which is certainly notable given the controversy surrounding that. And we've seen a number of other countries, including notably, notably Taiwan, country using country, setting aside the question, Taiwan is a country, but Taiwan, Japan, and I'm blanking on the third country that officially signaled it today, but a number of major exporters Singapore, in yeah. East Asia. Was it, was it Singapore or Malaysia? I think it was, I saw said? something about Singapore. Okay, that 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 may be right. Um, and my recollection is that they've uh, agreed to join a similar effort of sanctions, and that's part of an effort to cut out uh, Russian access to various uh, microchips, other type of high technology items that um, they're providing, among other things. So there is kind of a coordinated international effort that that appears to be holding together. So far, so good that the Biden administration and others have put together. So yeah, so Alex, is is this is it, what kind of package is this relative to? what they could do or what they should do. Sure. So let me spend just a brief moment addressing this this idea of limited aims, just limited to Luhansk and Donetsk, either as their their, their current boundaries or expanded to the entirety of those uh, oblasts, these provinces or states. The reason that that is, I think, a bit of wishful thinking is that it does not coincide with regards to, to Putin's kind of vitriol and rhetoric and uh, it also doesn't coincide with regards to facts on the ground, the way the, the Russians positioned forces around Ukraine, and that there is a um, expiration date on this on this operation. They can't keep those all those troops in the field indefinitely. It's just not realistic from a oper- military operational perspective. Morale is already uh, an issue now. It's always an issue in the military or Russian military, but it's it's more of an issue based on the reporting I'm I'm seeing. And also just the readiness, the ability to maintain aircraft in field conditions and, and even this, these hardy kind of ground force equipment, it becomes a challenge to, and it's going to start affecting operational readiness probably within the matter of like, you know, multiple weeks in their most advanced kind of fo- assault positions, their 
most forward staging areas. So I think this is likely to coincide with what Putin has said uh, or has uh, kind of signaled as well as to how the actual military is, is postured right now. With regards to the sanctions question, you know, that the Biden administration uh, settled on an approach that I don't agree with, and I'll explain that in a second. But that approach is to react to Russian provocations, to Russian escalations. And they were holding real firm to this notion of no action until the Russians really do something as a significantly escalatory or provocative. And I've been haranguing them about doing what I've called graduated response options. It's this idea that, you know, you need to, you can't just do everything in one fell swoop. You also have to signal the fact that you, you're, you're going to do it. Uh, you have both the capability and the will to do it and uh, that they should, should have done it in conjunction with kind of this constant rising of temperatures and all the activities that they're doing to uh, de facto blockade Ukraine from the seas. Then they could go ahead and go to much heavier options as they as the Russians escalate. And the reason that you might want to do that is because it has a, a may very well have a deterrent effect if uh, Vladimir Putin hadn't made a decision. Now, based on the fact that they settled on this idea, I'm really quite happy to see the fairly significant options, the sanctions options or the sanctions actions that they've taken today. Those are are not meaningless. Uh, the Isolation of Russia from the from the financial system or from the debt markets that's going to be pretty impactful. From a s- symbolic standpoint, the sanctioning of 351 um, Duma members that voted for the recognition of these these regions, Lugansk and, and Donetsk, uh, that that's good. There were some, unfortunately, the, the Brits took a much much more kind of limited action. They have a lot of runway to to increase it. But I think it's also important to address this question of whether it's enough. It's probably enough to signal that there's more coming without being so heavy handed where you might be, you know, you might indicate to Putin he's already paid the bill, might as well kind of, you know, eat the whole meal or something of that nature. But this is a part of the the issue with the the president's um, approach to this is that Biden's uh, administration limited their their arsenal to a much, much more narrow uh, set of tools as of December. I think there's a, a policy that we've employed uh, long-term and successfully in, in Taiwan, for instance, with regards to strategic ambiguity. It's this idea of uh, U.S. forces being employed to defend that strategic partnership. That would have affected uh, Putin's calculus going into this particular crisis and may have had a significant deterrence effect. But uh Biden's taken that off the table. Uh, it looks like he's had uh, he's basically laid out a very limited approach with regards to posture changes, waiting on the Russians to take significant actions before we position U.S. forces to defend NATO interests. And I think there's also something to be said about uh, the weapons provisions to Ukraine. They've also been quite limited in a way um, that's probably unhelpful in deterring Russian action here. The provision of some anti-armor capabilities and some uh, air defense by way of the Baltics uh, is not going to change the the Russian decision calculus for conducting this operation, but it it may on the, you know, tiny bit on the margins affect their, their tactical decision-making on how they conduct their operations, but it's not going to change, change their fundamental decision. There are other weapon systems that could have been provided 
that could have uh, had a, a more significant effect, like harpoons for coastal defense and even Patriots. Those are sophisticated systems, and the Ukrainians may have not been able to fully pull them into their defensive posture, their defensive operational design, but they would have had some sort of effect. And by not exercising those different options, I think we didn't do enough to avoid this uh, confrontation. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Scott, what do you expect in the coming days what are the, you mentioned uh, export controls and semiconductors, uh, what are the levers that haven't been pulled yet? And to what extent do you think they will be effective? And to the extent that they're effective, effective at what? It's all a fair question. You know, I, I can't claim a deep sanctions expertise over all the different mechanisms that are being used here. Uh, and like I said, I'm still catching up on what exactly has been deployed and hasn't been. You know, there are always a range of more entities. There's a lot of a number of large financial institutions that still haven't been subjected to specific sanctions. Again, there's the SWIFT cutoff. That's a poss- another possible lever, uh, export controls and other sorts of limitations on trade issues, stricter limitations on the energy sector. I think part of the reservations, part of the limits about all of this is about what the ripple effects are going to be for other actors cutting off, you know, major, major sanctions on the energy sector could have global ramifications for the global economy, cutting Russia out of Swiss transactions it might have like a short to medium term impact, but might also, you know, lead Russia to kind of pursue measures with China or using cryptocurrencies or pursue other measures that kind of get around those obstacles that permanently give it an advantage in evading economic pressure uh, from the United States uh, and creating a potential system that other actors could join onto as well. So there's all these sorts of balancing acts and how you're rolling out these various things. You know, I, President Biden in his remarks today made the point very clearly that, you know, the goal is to make sure that Russia feels consequences for this. Um, and I suspect he means Russia, the country, uh, and as well as kind of the leadership uh, and elites. But he also made the point that there are also going to be ramifications for others. Uh, while he's going to try and minimize them, there are going to be impacts on other participants in the global economy because of the range of these measures. And, you know, I suspect some of the more severe measures that have yet to be deployed are those that have the higher cost and likely to be felt there. It doesn't mean they're not a realistic uh, sanction. I think they very well might be, particularly as, as they go forward. I think the Biden administration, part of, you know, its strategy through all of this is very much been to try and maintain uh, a high degree of coordination w- on a multilateral basis, including on the sanctions fronts where 
a degree of coordination on the sanctions on on this on this particular issue is I, at least seems fairly impressive. I, most of the remarks I've seen commenting on say this is a, a diplomatic success to have this level of buy-in um, for various economic actors in applying these sanctions. But inevitably, you're going to feel some of these back effects on parts of the global economy. And you know you've 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 got to balance those and see how far you can push to, while keeping that sort of coalition together. It's just a complicated balancing act. So, Alex, you mentioned, and perhaps we should have started with this because it's the most appalling aspect. You know, the likelihood of massive civilian casualties. The Russian military does not play with the kind of attempts at precision that the U.S. military does, often not as successfully as it would like to. But when the Russians, you know, whether it's Syria or Chechnya or, uh, you know, they, they still have a kind of level a city kind of approach to military confrontation. You mentioned that you expect this one to be extremely ugly from a civilian risk point of view, what are we realistically talking about? So there are some, you know, sayings and proverbs that, that are actually probably pretty informative here. It's something along the lines of, you know, in, the only thing worse than instability is instability without end. The only thing worse than war is war without end and so forth. So these, these this is the kind of mindset where the Russians see some humanity and mercy in swift, brutal campaigns to uh, terminate uh, a war as quickly as possible. There's a, a consistent current of thought around this. I remember reading about like, you know, the 18th and 19th century conquest of the populations in Central Asia. And this this idea, this, this one Russian uh, general, Yermolov, talking about the fact that, you know, if we bleed, bleed them enough, uh, we've suppressed, you know, resistance for a generation. It's that kind of mentality that's really uh, is something that doesn't resonate with the Western uh, population. We would, would often consider uh, military as a tool of last resort. That is not necessarily a thought for Russia. It's a legitimate tool to be considered uh, amongst another set of legitimate tools. And this is not just kind of a hypothetical. If we look at how Russia conducted two recent campaigns, they're pretty informative. The Chechen War, the Second Chechen War in the ninety in the late nineties, ninety nine uh, into the early two thousands, cities were raised. There was no you know consideration of uh, collateral damage or non combatants to indicate that it wasn't just like a view of you know how, how you how you treat uh, a different ethnic group within Russia. They had the same kind of mentality with regards to combat operations in support of the Assad regime. There, they targeted hospitals and schools. And the thought is that somehow Ukraine being Slavic is going to spare Ukraine some of this pain. That is not the case. Uh, you see this campaign to kind of demonize and other, even though they were like a shared population, like a, a shared roots, uh, they're now considered fascists and Banderovci, like, ultra nationalists. So these are not the f kinds of, uh, it's not the kind of uh, rhetoric or language that indicates that the Russians are going to be a little bit more, you know, careful or, or cautious. And I think there's something to be said. It's interesting. I mean, this is a kind of like a crossover from 
the way the U.S. is be, uh, behaving about uh, the situation to the Russians. What I mean by that is the U.S. policy right now is punitive. It's not deterrent. It's to take punitive actions in response to Russian actions. So the Russians are also in that kind of same mindset. The Ukrainians are should know better. They're part of the same population. They're a fake country. But yet they forced Russia's hand to conduct these military offensives. And Putin wants to punish the Ukrainian population. He wants to punish the Ukrainian population for forcing his hand here. And he also wants to punish the Ukrainian population because they were instrumental in realizing the worst tragedy in the 20th century. And you know what that is? According to Vladimir Putin, it's the the collapse of the Soviet Union. And for those that understand what happened, it was a vote on December 1st, 1991, that put the nail in the coffin of the Soviet Union. By a overwhelming majority, 90% voted to leave the Soviet Union and uh, um, establish a new independent sovereign state. And after that, there are firsthand accounts of Yeltsin saying, well, we can't have a union without Ukraine there. We've lost all the right kind of you know, Russian Slavs, white Slavs. We're now going to be in the minority. There's no point in preserving the union. And they also terminated the idea of another kind of union, a post-Soviet, a non-communist union, because they bowed out of it. And again, you hear Yeltsin in the record saying, well, we can't do that. We would end up being the minority. So I think this is going to be a punitive expedition. And I think, unfortunately, uh, it's going to be a a significant human catastrophe, um, not just in terms of lives lost, but in terms of lives ruined. Refugees, I I know several groups that are preparing for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of refugees. And I'm not even quite sure how the Europeans, Eastern Europeans, prepare for those kinds of numbers streaming across the border. Especially because if you look at a map, uh, there are, I think, four different EU countries that have borders with Ukraine. And Ukraine has a visa waiver a non-visa travel to EU countries. And so you wouldn't even have to, people can just walk across those borders, um, which are in any event very long. I want to ask about how sustainable this is for the Russians, because, you know, on the one hand, you know, they have a, a one of the most powerful militaries in the world, Ukraine does not, although it is substantially improved over where it was a few years ago, and it's got some modern armaments. On the other hand, as the Afghans proved, it's one thing to take a lot of territory in a country that you overmatch militarily. It's another thing to prevent uh, long-term insurgencies that are very draining and very damaging. How confident should Vladimir Putin be that this is accomplishable, not just in the short term, but in the long term? Well, I think he should be pretty confident in the short term, I would say. He is likely to achieve his military objectives just based on the devastating, well, the massive capability imbalance and the the devastating kind of blows he's likely to land in, in the first several days, first several hours for that matter. The Ukrainians major mismatch is in the fact that there is no air force to speak of. There is no naval capability to speak of. The 
Ukrainians don't have sufficient air defense capabilities to deal with Russian air force and Russian air dominance. And the capabilities on the anti-armor side are there, but they're not going to be sufficient. The Russians have thousands and thousands of armored vehicles. The Ukrainians don't have sufficient anti-armor capabilities. And the misfire, a mismatch on fires is enormous. The Russians have like, that. that's where they invest a, a, a lot of their resources in, into ground-based fires. So these are cruise missiles, long-range artillery, like these, you know, super powerful, modern thermobaric long-range fires. These are things that like, you know, wipe out large swaths of ter- territory. So I think the Ukrainians are, are going to put up a fight. They have the morale to do it. I would say that the Russians don't have the highest morale in, in a number of their units that they have along their border. But I think those capabilities are just going to be hard to deal with. I hope I'm wrong about that. I hope the fact is that, you know, I'm underestimating how bad the Russian morale is and how much of a difference the high morale, the, the willingness to def- to sacrifice your life to defend your homeland is going to play into this. But uh, those are just difficult things to overcome. So in the short run, he's going to be he'll be fine. Uh, but that's just in terms of, you know, smashing large uh, Ukrainian military formations. He's still going to have to contend with a situation in which the Ukrainian uh, armed forces recede back into the series, uh, cities and he might have to duke it out in the cities. And there's, you know, the, the whole saying about uh, cities eat armies. That's that's true. That's the the, the, the that could be a, a, a he doesn't have anywhere near the combat power to uh, fight through major cities. But he might not need to do that. He might be able to do the things I mentioned earlier, smash the Ukrainian military, destroy their ability to defend themselves, uh, knock out the political leadership, punish the population, and install a uh, a, a puppet government, and then uh, go back to, to uh, Russian territory after doing like a pretty good, a large smash operation. If he chooses to stay in, I think... The Russians have a lot of recourse too, because they're going to be brutal in suppressing insurgencies, and that's going to be costly in terms of lives. Uh, but that's a hard one to kind of calculate out. But the biggest miscalculation, of course, for for Putin is not on the military side; it's on the the holistic national side. The kind of cost that the Putin regime and unfortunately the Russian population is going to have to uh, bear as a result of this. And they will be isolated. We are already, I think, in a Cold War 2.0 scenario. The only trick right now is managing this crisis sufficiently well to avoid a hot war between nuclear powers. But we're in this scenario and and Russia is is not going to be able to return to normal. It's going to be isolated for the foreseeable future. Based on these actions on the ground in in Ukraine, as they unfold, they'll be uh, a pariah even difficult for places like China to deal with. I think this is one of those questions, what, what's China's role here? And it seems there are some small indicators that China is not happy about the direction things are moving in, partially because China recognizes it's going to bear a significant amount of the cost. The Russians may have said, uh, uh, you know, had some wishful thinking or suggested that they could pressure the Ukrainians into some sort of compromise. That's not happening, and it's moving towards a confrontation that's going to affect the fragile uh, Chinese economy, and it's going to upend the international system in a way that's not helpful to China. A system, by, by the way, that has helped China become a rising superpower. 
So I think we'll see how the Chinese play in this, but I, I think they're likely to be more constructive than than seemed to be the case early on. So Scott, what, how do you see the diplomacy of this playing out? Assuming we are watching the beginning of something that becomes big and bloody, does the coalition that has formed and that seems kind of on the same page uh, stay together once you get past the first few days? You know, honestly, my assessment would be that the number one way to keep the coalition that's been putting pressure on Russia is to make it big and bloody. Uh, you know, that is the thing where there is the most unity of opinion that what would happen would be bad and that there is a reason to punish Russia uh, at that point uh, and an effort to, I guess, deter further escalation to the extent there is space for escalation further, further up the ladder. You know, that's the calculus that's bringing people together is the very real threat that Putin is projecting. It's both his source of leverage, uh, but it's also the thing that's proved effective at bringing all these different countries together. Uh, So, you know, that actually I think is an easier scenario than if Putin were to slow the advance or to set more limited targets, at least in the interim. That becomes much more challenging, I think, because then you can see a diversity of opinion saying, well, look, you know, he's moved into these separatist areas, but he's not yet moving on Kiev. Uh, he's, you know, taken more limited sorts of actions. Yeah, he may be preparing for something down the line, but maybe we have a higher tolerance for this than we would for something greater. And it's worth keeping, uh, you know, a greater punitive measures for after the fact that you can deter that. And that means kind of coming to some degree of tacit, no doubt, but uh, acceptance of of some of the, you know, fait accompli that Putin's tried to exercise by recognizing these republics and then moving into them. Um, I don't think we have a strong sense. Uh, I know Alex is not very confident. And, you know, I would defer to him on, on assessments of this stuff because I don't follow this particular region nearly as closely as he does. You know, but my my general sense is like that becomes a much harder calculus for the coalition of states uh, against Russia to balance with. And why, in my mind, you know, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that you would see Putin try and take advantage of that, again, by laying out any particular efforts in stages, create ambiguity about his objectives, and potentially trying to introduce some of the more fractious views uh, around, so especially when it comes to some of the harder measures, that will be harder both for U.S. and Western allies to swallow, as well as for Russia down the road, as a way of potentially limiting their willingness to uh, infringe on there and basically make some major gains while accepting, while avoiding some of the higher costs and maybe saving opportunities for later. But that could be wrong. Uh, you know, it's entirely possible that this is all just a feint. Uh, and in fact, that, you know, the full campaign is going to go forward uh, towards Kiev and the rest of uh, Ukraine. I, I, I don't I don't think we know. Um, I think Putin's very deliberately tried to paint things as that's a possibility to have a credible threat uh, as a source of leverage. But, you know, he may very well be fully intending to follow through on that threat. Um, I think that's the point where we get the, the full scenario that Alex has sketched out for us. But again, if, if if that's the case, I think the global opinion is going to be its most unified. It's the spectrum between, uh, you know, the status quo yesterday and that particular outcome that it gets harder to build consensus around an approach to. Um, but I, I will say, I think the Biden administration has done an impressive job on that so far. Um, and I clearly been a priority for them. I suspect it's going to continue to be a priority for them. 
I just want to second Scott's point about uh, the the work that the Biden administration has done. I have been a little bit critical about the fact that, given the consequences of what's what look, is likely to unfold, we have we have not done enough to deter it. But there are some pretty amazing things that the Biden administration has done, and the the president has been unwavering in his defense of U.S. national security interests, putting him above anything else. You know, the fact that he doesn't want to put American lives online and also with regards to the diplomatic efforts to build consensus. He deserves an enormous amount of credit coming after, you know, four years of Trump and some seriously damaged relationships. Uh, he and his, his team deserve uh, quite a bit of credit for that. We are going to leave it there. Alex Vindman, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, former NSC Defense Minister of Ukraine, Scott R. Anderson, Lawfare Senior Editor, thank you both so much for joining us. Ben, I, we can't leave it there. I need, to, I need to say, I hope I'm completely wrong about everything I just said. That's where I want to leave it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the great Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part. That means you should become a material supporter of Lawfare. You can do that at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the one, the only, Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.